listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi there, welcome to episode 34 of Sitting Now. Um, I'm Ken Eakins and joining me in the hot seats this time are uh, Kim Monaghan. Hello Kim, how are you doing? I'm very well, Ken. Thank you for having me back on. Anytime, anytime. And a newcomer to the show, an old friend of mine, uh, Ben Llewellyn. How are you doing, Ben? Yeah, not too bad, Kenny. Not too bad. I'm quite uh, jazzed about today's episode, but uh, before we get to that, um, we'll uh, cut to an advert break. Excuse me. I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about nine pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy. Let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad Pain. This Week in Tech, Warren Town Talk, NASCAR Zone, Shelly the Republican, A Voice from Eden, Jimmy McBean, Five Minutes with Wichita, Cinema Playground, Offbeat, The Logo Factory, The Sandy Aguirre's, Exit 50, This and That with Jeff and Pat, Thoughts on Psychiatry, Web Hosting Show, Merlin from Berlin, Random Cast, Jazz with Tiger, American Road Trip Show, The Drew M Podcast, The Slam Idol Podcast, Forgotten Tales, The Zencast, XboxStation.net, How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. And we are back. So, uh, who's our guest today then, Kim? It's a gentleman named Dennis Balthazar. Yeah, or Balthazar. I think it might be Balthazar, actually, or ba- Balthazar. It's very important that we actually know his name before we start speaking to him, probably. Yeah, that would probably help. Um, it, his I, name... I don't actually know him. Uh, I, I know what he does because uh, I'm interviewing him, but I don't actually know him in, in his field, I have to say. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I've heard him on a few shows before and he's quite a knowledgeable guy. Um, he's uh, got a history. He actually lives in Roswell, which is what we're going to be talking to him a bit, a bit about today. And he apparently spent 33 years in civil engineering and blah, 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 and he's become a you know, a, a big a big name on the Roswell UFO investigation scene, as it were. So yeah, I'm quite looking forward to the to the interview actually we haven't done a UFO show since god I don't even remember we did do one oh we were Nick Pope didn't we we uh, interviewed Nick Pope that's right yeah and that must have been a long time ago that was in the first 10 episodes I think so yeah it's been a while and it's a subject I, I don't know why we haven't covered it more because it's one I've always found fascinating and um, but yeah yeah so let's, uh, let's cut to that now and we'll speak to you after the interview
Hi, Dennis Balthaser. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Well, I've uh, got a background of civil engineering. I had 33 years with the Texas Highway Department in civil engineering. Prior to that, I had three years in the United States Army in an engineering battalion. Was assigned to Greenland twice, and never forgave the Army for that. <laughs> and then uh, got out of the Army, went to work for the Texas Highway Department, got my diploma in highway engineering through correspondence. Been interested in UFO research probably for 20, 25 years as a hobby. And when I retired in 1996, I moved to Roswell, went to work for an engineering company and started volunteering my time at the UFO Museum on weekends, eventually giving up the good-paying job with the engineering firm and being a full-time volunteer at the museum for about two and a half years, from 96 till 1998, at which time I decided uh, I didn't agree with everything the museum was doing and decided to do the research as an independent researcher, and I've been doing that for the last 12 years. Okay, so could you tell us, I mean, we've we've spoken to Nick Pope on the show before, but that's really been our only point of contact with uh, UF, ufology. Could you talk to us a little bit about the kind of the history of uh, the study of UFOs? And I believe it goes back uh, quite far. I mean, it, some people claim it goes back as far as the Bible, maybe earlier than that. Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about that at all? Well, as far as, as far as Roswell goes, uh, the research started about 1978 when uh, Stanton Friedman found the intelligence officer, Major Marcel, and they started doing some research then, and different people got involved, books started coming out, and that's basically when I got interested in, in the Roswell incident and tried to get everything I could on, on the information that was available. Uh, UFOs in general probably go back for, for hundreds of years if you look at some of the old art and tapestry work from the 13th and 14th century you'll see what appears to be in artwork images of UFOs uh, so it's not anything new it's not something that just happened in 1947 it's been uh, been around for some time unfortunately we still don't know what we're dealing with or, or who we're dealing with or where it's from but uh, I'm definitely under the opinion that whatever it is, is not of Earth. Uh, what people normally see in sightings, probably 90% can be explained as, as explainable objects, either man-made craft or planets or, or stars or balloons or things like that. So that 90% of it is explainable. The other 10% is not. And that's what I stay interested in is that 10%. Yeah. So would you say there's been a, since the kind of rise of the internet, would you say there's been a boom in uh, ufology and kind of groups starting and connecting? Uh, how's, how, do, how do you feel the internet's changed the, uh, the landscape of ufology? Definitely. It, the internet is both good and bad. Uh, it's an excellent source for getting material, for getting information. However, it's also a bad source for getting bad information. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, for example, there's 2,000 websites on Roswell. Of those 2,000, I have one of the top 10 sites. And that means that a lot of the people that claim to be so-called experts on Roswell have never been here 
never interviewed a witness and that don't know where the crash sites are. It's second and third hand information. And I spent a lot of time, what I call putting out fires of people that are putting out information that's not validated and confirmed. And to do UFO research, you absolutely have to verify it because there's too many out there waiting to jump on you, uh, debunkers and critics and things like that. So I think the Internet is a good source for information, but you have to be careful what you read. Yeah, I mean, would you say there's been a... One thing I've noticed from reading uh, books from back in the 70s and 80s, and I've seen it more recently on websites again, there seems to be a kind of uh, back and forth that goes on between skeptics and UFO researchers. Could you t- have you had any encounters with the kind of skeptical community? Or Oh, yeah, many. And uh, unfortunately, well, we need the skeptics and debunkers to keep us on- honest. But the problem that I've had over the years with skeptics and debunkers is they never bring anything new to the table. It's always putting down what we have researched, we being serious researchers. And if they would bring something new to the table, for instance, on the on the Roswell incident, they they try to stay with the mogul balloon theory. Well, the mogul balloon theory has been proven wrong, and by many people, and they won't they won't admit to to anything like that. And if they brought something new to the table, I'm more than willing to look at it. I don't need the frustration and the expense of doing this research. Mm. I'd much rather be fishing or doing something else. But (laughs) I I feel that there's so much information that would not been told that I have to keep doing what I'm doing. And, you know, there's a lot of people put Roswell down and say it's all over. And and I just don't buy that because I don't think we've been told the truth in 62 years. So, what, what, I mean, recently on television, I mean, we saw a kind of rise in back in the 90s with the X-Files and uh, all the kind of uh, documentaries appearing in the 90s. But again, recently, we seem to be seeing a kind of rise in um, television, you know, television programs um, focusing on UFOs and ufology and conspiracy theories and so forth. What do you think's prompted mm-hmm. that? I have problems with documentaries on television. I've, I've been involved with many documentary productions and i'm of the opinion now that the documentary producers are are producing what they're what they're showing for two reasons one is for ratings primarily Mm. and secondly is for profit i've had experiences with the national geographic channel the history channel and particularly the national geographic channel where i spent six hours taping videotaping with them here in in the roswell area using my vehicle, no reimbursement for the six hours that we spent together. And Stanton Friedman was also in the the documentary. And when they aired it, the last thing the announcer said was Roswell's a myth. And when these producers and these film crews get back to the studio and start editing, many times the answers that I have given are put with different questions than I was asked. Mm. So uh, I'm leery about TV documentary being accurate. I I like doing them, and I think it's necessary to get the information out, but I wish there was some way that they could be held accountable and actually report what is being said rather than someone in an office having an opinion and then changing the content of the documentary. Yeah. So it's... Um- it's inevitably presented as entertainment now as well, isn't it, rather than documentary? 
if mm-hmm. they're to, if a, if a TV program's talking about UFOs, it's not with any serious purpose. It's it's, it's almost always in a joke or entertaining form. Yeah, yeah. I I still think it's it's based on on ratings and, and profit. Again, I mean, recently on television, like the History Channel, the National Geographic Channel, um, and there's a lot of uh, kind of TV shows, like fictional TV shows, that seem to be sort of focusing on the on on UFOs again at the moment, and it seems to be back in the kind of public consciousness again at the moment. And I was wondering, well, like on like the internet, uh, UFOs is the second most popular thing on on the internet behind mm-hmm. pornography. Unfortunately, <laughs> but there's a tremendous interest in the subject of UFOs, and what most people in in uh, official responsibilities don't understand, particularly politicians, is that like here in the United States, about 65, 70 percent of the people believe in UFOs, and about 70 percent of those think it's covered up by the government. Those are higher percentages than the politicians get elected by. And they should be listening to the public because the public is interested in this and wants some answers. If what is going on has anything to do with national security, I think we could handle that if they told us, you know, we can't talk about this because of national security. But to just flat lie like they've done with the Roswell incident on four separate occasions, they've given us four separate excuses for Roswell. And, you know, after you get your fourth excuse, you start wondering, well, what's the next excuse going to be hmm. yeah definitely okay so we've been talking about roswell and the roswell incident and i'm sure most people know about it but i'd like to go into it from the beginning if if you if you would um so what did happen in 1947 i mean what what's the official story and what's the kind of what's your understanding of what happened well in july of 1947 there was a, a craft of unknown origin crashed on a ranch about 65 miles northwest of roswell it was discovered by a ranch foreman named mac brazel who had heard a loud sound the night before during a thunderstorm he said it was louder than thunder uh, an explosion of some kind and went out the next day to check on sheep and look at his windmills for damage from the storm the previous night. When he came upon a debris field that was three-quarters of a mile long and several hundred yards wide, he had no idea what this was, and these sheep wouldn't go across it. He had to take them around it to get them to water, talked to his neighbor about it, and suggested they suggested that he come to Roswell, 60-some miles away, and see what the sheriff or the military knew about it, because that was the closest location of any military. And he did that and stopped at the sheriff's office. Sheriff got a hold of Major Marcel, the intelligence officer, with the 509th Bomb Wing. Now, it's interesting to note that the 509th Bomb Wing, who investigated the Russell incident, was the same group that dropped the atomic bombs on Japan to end the Second World War. So these were the best military people in the world at the time, charged with the responsibility of the atom bomb, and we're supposed to believe they were too dumb to know the difference between a weather balloon and a flying saucer, <laughs> which is something that I've always had a problem with, yeah. because those those were elite troops. They were hand-selected to, to handle the atomic bomb, the 509th bomb wing. Anyway, when... Uh, when uh, the rancher got to town, Major Marcel and Captain Cavett went back out to the ranch with him and spent the night on the ranch because it was dark. 
got up the next day, collected some of the material, brought it back to town, and Major Marcel was asked to go to Fort Worth, Texas, to General Ramey's office with some of the debris. And when he got there, he had the packages put on the desk of the general's office, and the general said he wanted to go in the map room so he could see where this was on the map. When they came out of the map room, the material that Major Marcel had brought with him was no longer on the desk, and on the floor was a weather balloon. Major Marcel was told to pose for pictures, and he said, that's not the material I brought in. And the general said, you pose for the pictures, I'll answer the questions. So Major Marcel was the scapegoat for Roswell. He posed with those pictures of a weather balloon, and until his dying days, he told everybody that what he posed with was not the material he brought in. I have copies of those pictures that were taken by James Bond Johnson in General Ramey's office, and I've studied them. And if you look at one of the pictures where the general and his assistant, Colonel DeBose, are in the photograph with the weather balloon on the floor, the brown wrapping paper underneath that material is off of a brand new roll of paper indicating to me that that is not the paper that the debris was wrapped in because there are no creases or, or crinkle marks for showing that material had been wrapped in it. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there are unopened packages in the back of that photograph against the wall behind the general, which are probably the actual packages that uh, Major Marcel had taken with him. So he came back to town, back to Roswell, and really told his family that we'll not talk about this again, and didn't until he was discovered by Stanton Friedman in 1978. And basically, the Army Air Force here, Walter Hall, the public relations officer, was told to put out a press release by Colonel Blanchard, the base commander, that stated that we have in our possession a flying saucer. That was July 8, 1947. It was distributed to both radio stations and both newspapers here in Roswell. It was picked up by the AP and went out on most newspapers the afternoon of July 8th, west of Chicago. General Ramey pulled a press conference that evening and said it was nothing but a weather balloon, that it had been misidentified as a weather balloon. His report went out on the newspapers on July 9th, east of Chicago, in the morning edition. So basically, three days after the story happened, it was all over. And then the research didn't start again until 1978. Do you think um, Do you think there was a great deal of evidence and potential kind of evidence gathering lost in that sort of gap between the incident and the you know the beginning of the research? <laughs> I think what was probably lost is uh, the first-hand accounts of the people that were involved Mm. because we're now 62 years later, and if the guys are still alive that were involved, they'd be in their 80s, 80 years old, Mm. and we're losing them fast. So the mortician is winning the battle, which may be what the the government wants. They may hope and all the guys that were involved will die and then everything will be second-hand information and they can continue to deny it. Hmm. I I do think that witnesses are still important. Uh, If I get the name of a new witness, I will contact him if I have a a means of contacting him, usually by telephone, and I'll ask him, what what do you know about the Russell incident? 
And nine times out of ten, they'll say, well, I wasn't there. I don't know anything about it. Hmm. Unfortunately for them, I have a copy of the Rossville Army Airfield yearbook from 1947, which is similar to a high school yearbook containing pictures of all the squadrons, individual pictures of all the airmen, their rank, and what squadron they were in. So I tell them, I'm looking at your picture. Hmm. And I tell them what their rank was and what squadrons were in. And then they know I have them, but they'll still say, well, I'm not going to talk about it. I promised the government and the military I wouldn't talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. So I'm really stuck there. I I can't go much further. Hmm. But that's the typical answer I get from those that I try to contact that are still alive. Do you often get any uh, kind of deathbed confessions? Uh, Has that ever happened or, you know, where people have... uh... In the last breath, that, almost. Yeah, that, that's our, basically, that's one of our last hopes, is that someone still alive will give a deathbed confession, or maybe someone that possibly has some of the debris, some of the material, will turn it over to, to a source that can be trusted. The, the problem with testing the material is that nearly all but a few colleges in the United States are government-supported. So if you took a piece of metal to one of these colleges, they're going to they're gonna put a lid on it real quick because of the government uh, subsidizing them. Hmm. But death confessions is something we're still looking for, and, and they're becoming very few and far between. Yeah, that's a shame. So well, you said it earlier, and I've read on your site, um, you talk about the four different excuses given by the Air Force. Could you go through those with mm-hmm. us, please? Well, the first one was July 8, 1947, when Walter Hawk wrote the press release saying that we have a flying saucer in our possession. The only time in the history of the United States media that such a statement was made, the next day, the headline said that uh, it was nothing but a weather balloon. And then there was no more excuses until 1994, when the Air Force came out with a voluminous report, a two-and-a-half-inch thick book, in which they said it was neither a flying saucer nor a uh, weather balloon. It was a mogul balloon. A mogul balloons were high-altitude balloons that were being launched with equipment on them to check to see if the Russians were doing any nuclear testing. The Russians didn't do any nuclear testing till 1949, two years after the incident. So... That story was pretty pretty well accepted by most people, except for the, the time factor that the Russians hadn't done any testing yet. And then in 1997, two weeks before the 50th anniversary, the Air Force came out with another report called Case Closed. In that report, they said that they had never addressed the comments by witnesses about bodies and that the bodies were anthropomorphic crash test dummies. <laughs> The Air Force shot themselves in the foot with that report because the dummies weren't used till 1953, six years after the Roswell incident. Hmm. So they would have been better off staying with the mogul balloon story, which some people were buying into. The anthropomorphic dummy story is an absolute absurd way of trying to explain this thing. I'm 68 years old. If I live long enough, I fully expect there will be a fifth excuse. Yeah. Yeah, so... Now, I have a, th- I have a theory, if, if I may share it. Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, my theory on Roswell, and this is strictly my theory, is that whatever was recovered in 1947, we still don't know what we have. 
We don't know how it operates. Propulsion system, guidance systems, we don't know where it's from. We don't know what their motive was for being here. And until we can get the military advantage out of that, get the technology, they will not admit that it happened or that they know anything about it. Um, in, uh, I was reading one of your editorials and it said, uh, I can quote, it said, in 97 when I was intercepted by alleged US Air Force OSI agents in Oklahoma while trying to obtain a piece of metal from the Roswell craft, I was very intrigued. It reads like you, you were on a mission to find a piece of metal from the Roswell craft. Is that true? In 1997. I was with the museum at the time as a volunteer and got a call from a guy who said his daddy had been stationed here as a military policeman in 1947 and had a piece of the metal. And he wanted to get rid of it. He said he was scared people would kill over that piece of metal. So I had a conversation with the father. He, had di he was dying of uh, terminal cancer. And uh, I talked to his son several times on the phone, made arrangements to go to Oklahoma to meet him. And when I got there, I had a phone number and called three times and couldn't get an answer, kept getting a recording. I finally got a call about 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the hotel I was staying at from a woman who said, meet him at Denny's restaurant at 7 o'clock. So I went to Denny's restaurant. A man and woman came in, fitting the description she had given me. He said, are you Dennis? I said, yeah. He said, the gentleman you plan on meeting will not be at this meeting. I said, who are you? He said, we're special agents of the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigation. I said, how'd you know I was coming over here? He said, we knew Monday you'd be here Friday. I said, is my phone tapped? He smiled. He said, you know how we do business. I spent three and a half hours with him. We talked about Roswell, about the Bible, about uh, Area 51. He had a map of New Mexico. We talked about the crash sites, different things like that. Never did meet the father or the son and came back empty-handed. Called back over there a few days later and talked to the son and told him my dissatisfaction with the way things had come about. He said, I can't talk right now. Someone's still there. And then another voice came on the phone and told me, if you keep messing with the Air Force OSI office, you're barking up the wrong tree. This went on for... About 12 years <clears throat> that I researched this and tried to figure out who I was dealing with and primarily what their motive was for doing this because if it was a hoax, it was a, a hoax is usually something to embarrass you and, and it's a big splash and then it's over. This drug on for, for several months with phone calls and the visitation to Oklahoma and finally after 12 years, I was able to determine through the help of another researcher that I had been set up, and it was a hoax. Uh, statute of limitations ran out, or otherwise I would have tried to prosecute because they impersonated federal agents, which is a pretty severe federal offense. But uh, time got against me, and, and the statute of limitations ran out. But it was an experience uh, for me that I had never had before, nor do I want again. I did learn some things from it, that if it ever happens again, to have the opportunity to go somewhere, I will either be protected or have someone with me instead of doing it by myself. Mm. Mm. So, um, 
with uh, I mean Dulcie and uh, Roswell, what, there seems to be kind of a geographical kind of. Uh, I guess the word to the way to call it is New Mexico seems to be a bit of a hot spot. <laughs> Why do you think this is? Is it because it's kind of a remote area, maybe, or about Dulcie? I mean, Dulcie and Roswell, I mean, they're both in the same state, aren't they? I mean, it's both in New Mexico. Yeah, well, you have another one, too. You have Aztec, which happened March 1948, mm. 10 months after Roswell. That's up in the Four Corners area near Farmington, New Mexico. That involved a 99-foot craft with 13 bodies that's being researched. Uh, at the time I first heard about it, I didn't put much confidence in it, but uh, Scott Ramsey and his wife Suzanne have done tremendous research and are coming out with a book shortly. All right, can you tell us? I do believe that something happened at Aztec. Hmm. As far as any connection between Dulce and Aztec or Roswell, I don't think there's a connection. Hmm. There have been rumors about Dulce for the last 30 years, about it being an underground facility of some kind. And... Uh, very little information has come out about it. It's on the Hickory Apache Indian Reservation, uh, a place called the Archuleta Mesa, top of the mountain. Hmm. And this past March, Nario Hayakawa, who is another researcher, decided to have a conference there and invited me because of my research into underground bases. So I went up there and uh, we expected 20, 25 people to show up, and we had about 125 instead, and had to move the venue twice to get to where we could have uh, the meeting. The interesting thing that happened, we all were staying at the only hotel in town, the Hickorya Best Western, which is a casino and hotel on the Indian Reservation. And about 6 o'clock on Sunday morning, the meeting was supposed to start at about 10 o'clock. But about 6 o'clock, everybody in the hotel was woken up by the sound of a helicopter. Turns out there was a black unmarked helicopter hovering over the top of the hotel that morning. My guess is that they were probably looking at license plates and vehicles to see who was in attendance. But it certainly got our attention, and the Native Americans were very unhappy with what had taken place. Dilsey is one of them places that there's not enough information yet to verify the validity of it. I do believe that something is going on in that area, maybe not at that particular location, but in the area. Mm -hmm. (coughs) There's rumors that uh, there may be seven levels below ground, and... Mm -hmm. There's been reports on the internet in different places of uh, of this facility. Yeah, I mean, could you go uh, maybe a bit further into that with us? I mean, as, I mean, for those who don't know anything about Dulcie, I mean, I've only really heard, you know, a very small amount. I've only seen a very small amount of research on the internet. I'm sure it's probably growing with each week. But uh, what I mean, what is the kind of the background to the Dulcie story? Well, some of it goes back to Phil Schneider, who was an engineer who claims to have helped develop Dulce by being part of the crew that was doing some of the tunneling to the bore down into what they thought was the seven levels below ground. <clears throat> His story claims that uh, during that, they broke into a chamber and they were attacked by what he referred to as greys, ETs of some kind that had some form of weaponry 
that uh, shot at him, and nearly all the people involved were killed. There were a few that survived, including him, who later developed cancer. He went public with that information, and six months later was found dead in his apartment with a piano wire wrapped around his neck, and the government said that he had committed suicide, which is impossible to do. You can't commit suicide on yourself by doing that. Yeah. So that story has lingered on for, for many years. And then there were other accounts of uh, people who claimed to have been there, working there, and, and seeing different things. One thing that seems to be quite popular there is the, oh, an idea rather that seems to be quite popular there is the idea of this kind of human uh, alien experimentation. Uh, have you seen any kind of reliable evidence for that? Would you say? I have not seen any any validated evidence of it, but that that's a rumor that we hear that there's some, there's a biogenetic testing taking place on both humans and animals, and ETs working in cooperation with our own people, but. I have nothing to verify it. Yeah, another thing that seems to pop up is the that the, some kind of battle took place, apparently between I guess between aliens and humans in the in the actual you know alleged base. I'm not sure if you've heard anything about that either. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing with Bill Schneider where they, and I can't remember if it was brown berets they were talking about, which is similar to the black beret or green beret. Uh, I believe a unit of the FBI. I'm not sure. You say you specialize in underground bases, and one particular um, is, is Dulce unique, or are there other underground bases in the states? Do you believe? Or I think it, I think Dulce is unique in what we hear is taking place there. There's there's lots of underground bases. In fact, I believe most of the military bases in the Western United States, at least, are interconnected through tunnel systems. <clears throat> This underground thing is is become necessary because of satellites, and the United States is not the only one doing it. Many countries are doing it. The Russians, the Koreans have done it for years. The Vietnamese, Iran, different different countries because you can now read a newspaper from 200 miles above the Earth with with these satellites. So nothing can be do, done above ground anymore. Uh, some of the bases here in the United States, for instance, Area 51 is, is alleged to have 22 levels. Out at, uh, at California, there's several bases that have up to four five levels below ground. That's like a 45-story building down. Uh, White Sands Missile Range, 100 miles south of here, has seven levels, uh, four that I'm sure of, seven, I think. And... It's fairly common, and, and this is not anything new. The Hopi Indians talked about coming from within the earth with their ancestors. Socrates talked about underground facilities. So the underground thing is not something new. The technology and the equipment used to, to make these things, that's new. And by new, I mean within the last 30, 40 years. Mm. And some of the equipment they're using, I've been able to get a hold of pictures and, and drawings of different equipment that's used for boring through the earth. This is equipment that has been used for years in, in mining and in, in building highways through mountains and irrigation systems and things like that. So a workforce is readily available to do that. It's just a matter of keeping the secrecy on what actually is, is being done. Our government has several facilities for for our leaders underground. The president of the United States has one, the Congress has one, and the military has one. 
that are all underground facilities in the event of a nuclear attack or a national emergency, and they've been put into to use during the Cuban Missile Crisis and during the Kennedy assassination. So the underground systems are not anything new, but the secrecy involved with them is. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the uh, history of Area 51 as well. I mean, this is obviously another another fairly well-known uh, phenomenon in the, in the U.S. I mean... What is the history behind Area 51? How did it come into the public consciousness and what research have you done in that area? I was up there two or three years ago. I did a lecture at a little town of Rachel, which is adjacent to the the closest town, to the base. And Area 51 came into existence in 1955, not by the military, but by the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. They were looking for a location to test a new aircraft and they had been testing most aircraft out of Edwards Air Force Base in California. But with the secrecy of this new aircraft, they needed a, a more isolated location and decided on Groom Lake, Nevada, which is about 85 miles northwest of Las Vegas. And the Skunk Works in California, Johnson was the, uh, the engineer, developed the U-2 aircraft. Hmm. And that was test flown in, at Area 51 in 1956. The base was opened with a, a runway, a mess hall, several buildings for people that worked there, and under tight security. And since then, nearly every aircraft that we have has been test flown there, including the U-2, the SR-71 Blackbird, the A-1, the A-2, the B-1, the B-2, the A-10, the A-12, the F-117, the F-22 Raptor, which is our newest aircraft fighter, and all these have been test flown at Area 51. Today, the Air Force and the Navy are very heavily involved at Area 51. It's the size of the state of Connecticut. It's large. The security is like nowhere else in the world. The signs at the two gates say the use of deadly force is authorized, meaning that they can shoot you. Mm. And if you go in there and are caught, you will be turned over to the local authorities. You face up to $6,000 in fines, plus imprisonment, and they will know where you're at for the rest of your life. Mm. I believe there's more going on there than just the development of aircraft. I think that uh, maybe some of the Roswell debris, in fact, may be there because of security. There's been all kinds of rumors about UFOs and, and aliens being there. Hard to confirm, but the, the possibility exists and continues to exist. Has there ever been any kind of uh, any footage taken of anything around Area 51? I mean, I know, isn't that, again, isn't that a bit of a, uh, a hot spot, uh, kind of uh, sighting hotspot? for UFOs? Uh, there's been, there's a ranch right adjacent to it. Medlin owns the ranch and he had a mailbox that was sitting up there by the extraterrestrial highway and a road that goes into the base. That road into the base is 13 miles long. And uh, when we were there, we were driving down the road and about 10 miles down the road, I told my wife, I said, be watching the hills because there'll probably be a Jeep or a pickup truck up there with the guards and sure enough we came around one of the sand dunes and there was a truck with two guys sitting in it with binoculars watching us they were waiting for us they knew we were coming Mm. Uh, I I don't know 
I, I'm not seeing anything there. But there are many reports of people who have seen stuff come up from behind the mountain and hover or go by at tremendous speed and uh, nobody able to explain what it might be. Recently, the uh, Ministry of Defence here in the UK announced that uh, after researching UFO uh, reporting uh, sightings for the last 60-odd years since the Second World War, they've, they've stopped researching UFOs now. They're not taking any more uh, sort of reports about them. Well, I understand that the the Ministry of Defense in, in England and several other countries have started, France, uh, I think Brazil, are supposedly have started to release some of this information about UFOs, but I, I have not yet seen anything new that has come out of any of that. Uh, the United States is, is probably the, the, the best at not releasing information. <laughs> but it's encouraging to see some of these other countries at least trying to do that. Here in the United States, many people are surprised that the president is not involved or doesn't know anything about UFOs, but you have to understand that he's a temporary employee. He's here for eight years and can't be trusted. He has no security clearance for this. There's very few people involved in the cover-up, and many of our presidents have tried to uncover UFO information to no avail. Uh, President Reagan went to the United Nations and made a statement at the United Nations that maybe we should all on Earth get together to avoid something from out there and was told never to talk about that again. He had several sightings himself. Uh, Jimmy Carter, when he was uh, governor of Georgia, had a sighting and made a report to the Mutual UFO Network was going to get the information made public, never did. Bill Clinton wanted to know about the Kennedy assassination and the Roswell incident and asked one of his aides if he would check on it, and the aide came back and said he can't find a thing. So the president is not involved. He may be informed slightly on the fact that it exists, but not much more because he's not in a position to be trusted with the information. Right. And do you, uh, what do you think of, it seems like in the last couple of years there have been some really spectacular uh, um, uh, video uh, filmings of uh, amazing clusters of UFO formations pretty much over the globe. Um, do, what do you think about that? There's some, some very good evidence. Um, they've never said, obviously, one way or the other what they are, um, but... Well, you know, evidence is as good as the, the person providing it. With, with the videotapes we have today now, I think we're going to start getting better uh, evidence of what people are seeing, but I don't know, you know, with, with what can be done on the computer can... can change that real easy. So it, it's really hard to, to look at evidence and, and substantiate it and verify that it's accurate information. The Phoenix Lights a couple years ago was a good example where something went across the state of Arizona and thousands of people saw it, videotaped it. The O'Hare Airport incident a couple years ago where there was a craft hovering over the airport at Chicago. Mm. Uh, those are the kind of stories we look for because those have good background and good people involved in, in uh, what they're observing. So what would you say was the most compelling uh, evidence you've 
that's that's kind of appeared recently? I mean, is there anything that particularly stands out? Oh, Stephenville, Texas. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, last year, I believe it was, there was a sighting over Stephenville, Texas, which is not too far from Dallas, Fort Worth. And uh, when the Air Force was asked about it, they said that uh, they knew nothing about it. And then two weeks later, they said they had, I don't know, 10 or 12 F-15s flying. It took them two weeks to realize that these airplanes were supposed to be in the sky. So here again, we had an excuse by the Air Force that's pretty lame and and not something that can be believed. But the the Stephenville, Texas case is one that uh, deserves more more research. Uh, there's probably several others that uh, have validity to them, and, and it's a matter of getting to the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so earlier on you alluded to um, uh, the Aztec New Mexico um, uh, case. Could you give us a bit more background on that, please? That was in uh, March of 1948, which was 10 months after Roswell. And that was not a crashed vehicle, but a craft that came down intact. And when people went up and saw it, it was measured at 99 feet in diameter. 13 bodies, someone had looked inside and seen what looked like charred or burned bodies, small figures, uh, recovered by the military out of Colorado, uh, similar to what happened here in Roswell with the recovery. And for many years, I didn't put any confidence in, in the story. And then as Scott Ramsey started doing the research on it, I started looking at the the information he was gathering and, and became more interested in and, and now believe that there is validity to the story, that something also happened there 10 months after Roswell, and that needs to, to have more research done and, and more witnesses brought forward. Yeah, definitely. So um, one of the other things I was going to ask you about, I'm not sure if this is something you've looked into yourself, is uh, what people are calling China's Roswell, which is the uh, Droper discs. Have you ever heard of these? Or, the what? I think they're called the Dropa discs. There were strange discs that were found in China um, that may have had some kind of. They had some strange inscriptions on them. I was wondering if you'd ever uh, ever heard. When of did that happen? Um, I'm not 100 percent sure. I literally just saw something about it the other day and uh, uh, on a TV show, but I wasn't sure if this is something you'd uh, you'd heard of before or not. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. All right, okay, I'll, I'll dig it up and send you some links. So, all right, okay. So, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about before we kind of uh, kind of wrap up and conclude a bit um, was the your research with the pyramids in Giza, and I was wondering, is there a kind of a what is the research interest, and how are you involved, and and b does this somehow tie into your work with Roswell? Or? That's, that's kind of amusing how I got involved. There was a, a radio show host here in town who was interviewing the head of the the advisory board, and uh, they were talking about the possibility of ET involvement, and this radio host suggested that they contact me, and they did, and asked if I'd be willing to, to get on the advisory board. And I, I've always been interested in the pyramids because that's something physical that you can see and a whole lot of mystery because we don't know how they were built or who built them. And I got into that research and really, uh, you know, the Egyptologists try to tell us that uh, 
And I only talk about the three pyramids of Giza, not the others. There's probably 80 pyramids in Egypt, but those are all poor replicas of the, the three in, in on Giza, on the Giza Plateau. Hmm. And they, Egyptologists say that it was built for Khufu, uh, one of the pharaohs. Well, nothing was ever found inside the Great Pyramid to indicate that any pharaoh was ever buried there. In fact, the only thing they have on Khufu is a, a three-inch statue in the Cairo Museum, which was found many miles away from the pyramids. Uh, it's our opinion that the pyramids are much older than, than what the Egyptologists try to tell us. One of the problems is tourism is big business in Egypt. And for us to come out and say that the pyramids of Giza were not built by the Egyptians is not going to sell well. <laughs> uh, I think if you look at the Sphinx, the Sphinx gives you a lot of evidence to the age of the pyramids because the Sphinx has deterioration by water, not by wind and sand. Yeah. And there wasn't that amount of water in that part of the world for probably 15,000 years, which predates the Egyptian civilization. The Nile River is not located where it was back then, when the pyramids were supposedly built. And from an engineering standpoint, if you look at the number of rocks, blocks of stone that are in the pyramid, over two and a half million, in order for those that pyramid to have been built by 20 or 25,000 workers over a 20 or 30 year period, they would have had to erect a stone every 90 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The mathematics is there. If you if you run it through, you would have to set a stone every 90 seconds. In addition to setting a stone, you would have to be able to carve the stone out of the quarry with crude crude uh, tools, load it on a barge, run it up the Nile River transported across the desert to the location, and then set them. Well, the Nile River flooded every year, so there were several months where they couldn't even work. They couldn't even bring stones in. So to say that it was built by 25,000 people over a 20- or 30-year period just doesn't make sense. And the technology involved is not anything that we can compare with today. Uh, I think NOVA, the public television station, tried to duplicate this several years ago, wound up using heavy equipment and still couldn't do it. It's one of the only, it's the only one of the seven wonders of the world, ancient world, that still remain and has withstood the test of time. So it's just fascinating research, and I don't know if they'll ever know who built them. It's, it's interesting to keep trying to find out, but... Uh, we're pretty well convinced that it wasn't the Egyptian civilization. There was another civilization in Northern Africa prior to the Egyptians known as Comitians, K-H-E-M-I-T-I-A-N, which was a black civilization predominantly controlled by females who supposedly had contact with star people. So I'm not saying that ETs built the pyramids, but I am saying that the technology to build them could well have come from star people. Well, uh, when you uh, when you uh, hear that uh, scientists have found bacteria that have survived in space, and there have been some theories that um, life on Earth actually came from uh, maybe something that came from a rock, do you think it's um, that's too much of an anticlimax uh, 
for people and they'd much rather believe that life will actually be sentient and travel through space. The human mind is pretty weak when it comes to, to knowledge, really. Uh, we're not nearly as smart as we think we are. We can't go there, wherever there is. And if they are coming here, obviously they have technology and intelligence that we can't even comprehend because they can travel through space, through time, however they do it. And, you know, our, our technology has advanced you know, a hundredfold in the last 30 years. So if you have a civilization out there somewhere that's a hundred years older than us, thousand years, 10,000 years older than us, I can't even imagine what they might know. And it's not anything that we can comprehend. And unfortunately, the scientists now are finally admitting that there probably is life out there. But they always use the term life as we know it. And I can't find anywhere in the rule book where it has to be life as we know it. They may crawl on their stomach and, and breathe sulfuric acid, for all I know. But we limit everything that we can think about to what we actually know. And with the field of ufology, you can't do that if this exists. And I use the word if. If these ETs exist and they are coming here, then we have no comprehension on what it might be what their motives would be and what their knowledge would be. Hmm. Yeah, it was. It's always seemed a little bit arrogant, almost to me, to to, to assume that there's no life of their ours. If you know, that, what I mean. that's a true statement. We are very arrogant. We think we're the smartest kids in the neighborhood, and we don't even know where the neighborhood is. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's it's impl- I mean, you've used the phrase yourself in the in, the, in our conversation. Um, the, the phrase cover up why 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 do you personally feel that the government would cover up um a ufo well, that's, an, that's an easy question yeah. uh, i believe cover up exists because i don't know i can't speak for any other countries but i can speak for the united states the united states is not going to admit anything that they cannot control hmm. and if we've been visited for all these years and continue to be visited, they can't stop it, they can't control it. And until they can get a handle on that and control it, they're not going to admit to that. So I think I think it's strictly a control thing. Hmm. That's interesting. So- Keep the people in suspense for one thing, and if you notice many of the movies that come out in the documentaries, the aliens are negative type, here to destroy us and things like that and I believe if they want to destroy us they've had every opportunity to do that mm. and that's not happened so I think maybe we could learn from them I think maybe maybe they have a cure for many of the diseases we know maybe they have a, 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 a way of living longer getting along with each other because here on, on earth you know we're trying to destroy the planet as fast as we can with the environment and the rainforest and, and global warming whatever you have and you know we're war people we can't get along with each other because of races and boundaries and, and things like that so and i don't know anyone that can speak for the earth hmm. uh, if they wanted to communicate with us uh, who would who would represent us 
each country has their own ego, and, and I think uh, that would be a major problem. Yeah. Uh, I'd, choose da- I'd choose David Hasselhoff personally, but yeah. that probably wouldn't be everyone's choice. Maybe William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> William Shatner would be an excellent choice too. <laughs> so for uh, well, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of editorials on my my uh, website uh, truthseeker@rawsoul.com where I've I've written editorials since 1999 about my my four areas of research, and I'm pretty opinionated from time to time, but I'm brutally honest also. And and with the skeptics and debunkers, I go after them publicly. I found that doing it uh, politically correct doesn't work, so I go after them publicly if they're mis- putting out misinformation or wrong information. And uh, there's a lot of good information on my website on truthseeker@roswell.com. So I was going to say, actually, for someone that um, wants to kind of get involved or you know wants to really start kind of uh, probing the subject a bit further, where is a good other than your own site? I mean, are there kind of community sites that people can go to, like? good you know forums or anywhere in particular well, that's a good question because there's no college courses uh, yeah exactly <laughs> for, for ufology and uh, most times people get involved just through an interest and, and through reading books and, and and starting to attend conferences and things like that but again like i said about the internet you have to be careful the mutual ufo network uh and mufon does have a a a study guide that you can obtain and become a field investigator, which is a pretty good, pretty good source. Uh, but as far as anything official, there there is nothing really. Yeah. yeah so it's always seemed like a wasted opportunity in some ways to me. Like it would be quite good to have a kind of uh, some kind of uh, cohesion, you know, some homogeneity in the in the UFO field because there does seem to be a, a kind of a uh, you know, uh, some infighting quite a lot of the time <laughs> in terms of the researchers, but basically, yeah, basically, <clears throat> I know, like me, it was it was more as a hobby. You know, I, I had an interest in it, and I'd get books and read books, and uh, I started attending some meetings and things like that, and became more interested. And then I, through researchers that I met, Stanton Friedman and and other researchers I met, uh, started getting more information and started doing my own research. Uh, into government documents and uh, freedom of information requests and things like that. Hmm. Okay, so, um, well, thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show. Like you said, uh, could you give us that website address again so that people can find you on the web? Okay, www.truthseeker.roswell. That's all one word, the word A-T, not the symbol at truthseeker.roswell.com. I've got my email address on there if anybody in your audience has questions. Tell them to, to drop me a line. I get 100 to 150 emails a day, and I try to answer those that are, are good emails that don't hit the delete button. <laughs> Excellent. So, have you got any um, any sort of upcoming plans? Anything that you're you're planning on producing? Or I do. I've got uh, I've got a lecture coming up right here in town at First Baptist Church, of all places, uh, where I'm a member. Uh, they have a senior luncheon once a month, and I've done three lectures to the biggest crowds they've had. And uh, I take a little harassment, you know, people ask me, have you seen any aliens and things like that, but uh, they respect the research I do, and that's all I ask, is that I be respected. Mm. I've got uh, one coming up in July for the festival here in Roswell. They have the anniversary again this coming July, 
and then have two coming up at Angel Fire, New Mexico, sometime in the fall. Uh, looking at one in Georgia, and working with a, a researcher in Pennsylvania about possibly doing something with him. Hmm. I um, continue to write the editorials about every other month on my website, so that's of interest, and people want to go there. You mentioned you're a member of a church, and obviously um, for some people that clashes with your research. Um, was it uh, Pat Robinson that uh, made a statement <laughs> saying, saying that people who... Uh, did he say people who believe in UFOs and uh, alien life should, should be stoned? stoned. <laughs> yeah, Pat Robinson said anyone, any of these researchers who believe in UFOs or aliens should be stoned. That's not very comforting. Uh, <laughs> What Pat Robertson doesn't understand is that the Catholic Church has the biggest UFO library in the world, in, at the Vatican. That's interesting. And they have uh, telescopes at uh, about three locations. They're very interested in in space, and they have recently admitted to one of their monsignors that there probably is life out there somewhere. Yeah, didn't they just mention something about aliens being our space brothers? Was, was that one mm -hmm. comment they made? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have no problem being a Christian and doing this. I believe my my theory is if you believe God created everything, that's everything. And yeah, kind of ends the story. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Okay, well, thanks a lot again, Dennis. We'll have to get you back on and get a bit deeper into some of these subjects. I think. <laughs> okay, appreciate the interview. No problem. We'll speak to you soon. Welcome to MySpace Heroes, episode 17, quite probably, with me, Daddy Tank. Uh, it's a bit of a corker this week, uh, not only am I back in glorious uh, high-quality stereo, but uh, we've got uh, elephants like White Hills with Foundation, uh, Vector Trio with The Road to Salola, and Vix with uh, Clipper. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Click on the links and you'll see. Yeah! 
and we're back. Well, guys, uh, how did you find the Dennis Balfazer interview? Um, well, I'd just like to say, Ken, that if, you know, if you're going to ask me to co-host with you, then I'd appreciate being able to get uh, some words in edgeways because you know Ben's just all over the shop. He's just know, like yeah. a, he's like a psychotic uh, podcast uh, narrator. We've created a monster, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Ben, you were pretty uh, hard to shut up during that interview. What, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm lost for words again. <laughs> <laughs> He's a bit, when put on the spot, Ben suddenly shuts So like you should have heard him when he was off the mic. Bloody hell. Banging that big the, red, no. big, the big red light in the studio that's flashing, it, it's, it's mesmerising. <laughs> no, it's because, like I was saying to uh, Kim, my, uh, my note sheet is a, a series of uh, doodles of flowers and uh, faces. <laughs> and... Uh, and just notes that I can't read. Um, sort of cryptic, like alien kind of. Yeah. yeah I see. Anyway, how did you guys find Dennis Balfazer? Did you uh, did you find him to be a good guest or? Yeah, he was a, he was a, a nice guy. He was he's um, he's obviously been talking about his chosen subjects for quite a long time, um, and you know he's got he's kind of got. Uh, after reading the editorials, some of the some of the things he said in the editorials came out word perfect. So you, that's always a sign that someone's done a lot of talking about their subject. But he's a, he's a nice guy, and he's he, he's relatively not sceptical. He obviously he's obviously uh, believes in you know UF extraterrestrial intelligence and stuff. But he's got a relatively uh, analytic way of looking at it. He's just mildly sceptical in his approach. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be something we luck out on quite a lot when we have our guests on and we're sitting now and people people often ask why we don't have shows every week and that's kind of why, because we always like to try and get guys like Dennis on the show <laughs> and they're not always available every week, obviously. But, I mean, like Jim Mars, who we had on last week, is, isn't the kind of conspiracy writer that really ram stuff down your throat when you're talking to you know you can actually have a conversation with them which is kind of uh, you know important as far as i'm concerned and also yeah i like to get people on that you know know their stuff <laughs> and i think yeah, but he, he, he was a good introduction i think is yeah, as good I primer, to him, yeah like for people that may not know anything about it mm. he yeah, um he, he gives yeah he gives a good introduction for people yeah i mean i, I think that's kind of the mo of the show in some ways though i mean what we do is when we do take on the subject we tend to do a few 101 shows then go a bit deeper into the subject so hopefully we'll get someone Dennis maybe or someone else in to talk more at length about some of the subjects we spoke about today but yeah no, I enjoyed it I thought it was a, a good interview fun to do and uh, yeah you like I said it was kind of hard to get words in edgeways over Ben but you know it's uh... because <laughs> it's, it's I, I was listening to uh, Dennis yeah I know, I know, that, I know that was my problem we're just ribbing you but anyway yeah um, <laughs> If you, want to... you should be th- you should be thinking about you and uh, and what you want to say, not listening to the uh, the guest. <laughs> <laughs> Mad man. It's all it's all about you, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, Kim, Kim. Yeah. Kim cast. Anyway, as uh, as you can probably guess, we're at the end of the show, and uh, if you want to get in contact with me, uh, you know, for anything for the site or for the uh, for the show, it's Ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Obviously, the site is sittingnow.co.uk if you want to check out our other shows. This is episode 34, so there's 33 other episodes. And they don't all have Kim just talking about himself on them. Just, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that said, though, I am uh, I am looking forward to it, introducing myself shortly uh, with my MySpace Hero segment. There's nothing gives me greater pleasure than introducing myself in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, is always, uh, that is always good. And thanks again for doing another one of those, Kim. Uh, 
the show wouldn't be the same without them these days. But uh, yeah, if you, yeah, as I said, if you want to get into contact with us, if you want to follow us on Twitter, surprisingly, it's twitter.com forward slash city now, myspace.com forward slash city now, and I, I will get around eventually to uh, doing a, a Facebook group as well because they seem to be all the rage at the moment, although I don't really see the point. But anyway, uh, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll see you next week. Uh, I've got a, a guest booked, but. I won't say who it is yet because you never know. But yeah, we will actually see you next week and uh, have a good week. See you later.